Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Stray the Course podcast. This episode was recorded in my cellar with my friend Andy Stashenko. Andy's a PhD student at UNH. He has degrees in English from the College of Charleston and the University of Arizona. He writes about and studies the genre conventions of Shakespearean tragedies and Shakespeare adaptations. He's also a grappler, a guy who routinely uses words I have to look up, and he's responsible for getting me, a guy who only passed a year of high school English, interested in Shakespeare and H.P. Lovecraft. As always, this episode is brought to you by Tortuga Soap Company. All kinds of things to keep you looking and smelling good, tortugasoap.com. We are Dapper Ties, quality knit ties at an affordable price. Enter the discount code ROLL and get free shipping. Also, a big shout out to the Red Wing Superior Podcast Network. They put this whole thing together, and for that, we are grateful. Check out the other shows on the network and uh, support those guys, too. If you want to support us, probably the easiest way is to go to iTunes or however you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate that. Hopefully, this episode encourages you to go out and read something. We appreciate the support. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope everybody's doing all right. Peace. All right, Andy, welcome to the basement. Welcome to this edition of the Basement Tapes, the worldwide headquarters of Tortuga Soap Company. I feel honored. Do you? Yeah, I think you, you just had a blast. <laughs> like, Jesus. You're like a spider luring the fly in. And when the fly gets in, forget it. You're 17 bars of soap deep. Oh, the Black Widow. It's fun smelling soaps. I mean, who? Yeah. what else would somebody want to do on a Friday night? Smell some soap. Check out cool soap designs. This is, but I feel like this is like, you know, I'm from the South, right? So we don't have like winter nights in a warm basement. You know, there's something (laughs) romantic about coming into the basement with the heater on and drinking tea and talking to your friends. Feels like this is what you do in New England. This is what you do. This is what you do. And this house here, let me tell you, this house is like 150 years old. Um, it's been in, in the law family for a long time mm-hmm. it's been uh, just got renovated though like this thing was horrible mm. like it behind the walls it's stone and brick and uh, yeah it was a rough I, shape I never thought in my life that we would be sitting down here um, you wanted to get out of here huh talking talking uh, smelling soap on a Friday yeah. night talking where were you born? I was born in Connecticut, actually. Really? You probably didn't know that about me. No. Where? But, um, I was born in a town called Wolcott, Connecticut, and it was uh, next to Hartford. Yeah. My parents moved to South Carolina when I was in, like, second grade because uh, my mom's dad, um, my mom's parents moved down to South Carolina for the weather, so they followed them. And um, I've, I'm the... I'm a southerner, but I have like this Polak last name, you know, so I've never really been a true southerner because my last name is uh, Stashenko. 
And then you and, were born and, in Connecticut. Yeah, and I was born in Connecticut. And everybody that I went to high school was like, you know, Justin Dooley and like, you know, Rhett, Avery, McHugh the third. <laughs> so I don't know how many people from the South you know, but um, they all have multiple last names. Mm -hmm. So one of my good friends, uh, his name is Gentry Taylor, right? He has two last names. Mm -hmm. And then you have girls who have like last names too. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different. This is a Charleston? Yeah, this is Charleston. Um, it's like a plantation ethos, you know. It's a cool place yeah. though, right? Yeah. Um, if you ever want to come down and sit on a porch and drink a mint julep with me. I do. We could, we could arrange that. A mint? A mint, a nice mint julep. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Um, being from New Hampshire... I was afraid of the South. Cause New Hampshire people are, I believe, or are afraid of the South. Why? Because I feel like growing up, I was always like, "Man, you go down there, they're they're gonna take you the Northerner and tie you up, and that's mm. it. That's all you're ever gonna see of him." Because we're racist and antagonistic. <laughs> well, when you hear about the South will rise again, and, right? You know, right. you get you're like, yeah, you're like, whoa. Not, yeah. But I've met many people, and I have many friends from the South, and I love yeah. them. And I think they're, you know, that personality that you're talking about is everywhere, you know. It's just, totally. I see rednecks down there with Confederate flags and big trucks. I see rednecks up here mm -hmm. with, you know, big trucks and uh, Celtics gear. So it's just a different, <laughs> just a different aesthetic, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Um, I was one time, on that, for some reason, I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina one time. And uh, I think was the place. We were driving a U-Haul back from Florida, and I was very sick. I was like, had the flu or something. And we're, me and my buddy Mike Schreiber were in this like Waffle House or something. And uh, the our waitress was like, you know, y'all sick, you know, super nice and friendly, and you know, and and she's like, y'all need some of that Theraflu. You don't need to get that Theraflu. I'll never forget. Stuck with me forever. Like, very nice lady. Wanted to give me the Theraflu. I used to work at a um, chain steakhouse in high school. Yeah. And it was not really, like, in the city. You know, it was in a small town. And the city was close by. But people from, like, the surrounding areas, like the real boondocks, would come to this place. It was like an Applebee's, you know, but not. And it would be, like... You know, this is where the people from the swamps came to have a nice meal. Yeah. So people would ask me for chipotle sauce. <laughs> yes. They would ask for uh, vegetable melody instead of vegetable medley. Yeah. Uh, and, um, of course, very generous helpings of ranch and honey mustard. Oh, man. It's quite interesting, yeah. They're everywhere, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could find them thirty minutes from here. Totally. Oh yeah. Just different, you know. I love it though. I mean, I, I, I once too. I this is another telling thing about how I. We were coming back from North Carolina, one time bringing a boat back here. It's huge boat, and we're drag dragging it in the trailer, behind a Jeep, Cherokee. And it was like near Durham, somewhere near Durham. Okay. And the trailer broke down. I mean, that's we left from Durham. Some where the trailer broke down somewhere else, but it was like 
Um, we got on a side road, and the guy who was picking the boat up with and his kid, they went to the hard, go find the hardware store, and I'm like sitting there with the boat on this side road in North Carolina. And uh, I was a, you know, a grown up someone at the time. And this guy comes out of the house and he's like trying to get me to come in his house and like hang out. And I was like, no, nah, dude, I'm not going in there. And he was very friendly, but I just had the feeling like little George from, from New Hampshire goes in this house. You're never going to see sure. him again. It's going to be like Buffalo Bob. Right. I feel like there's some shades of deliverance in that story. You know? That's how I felt. Yeah. And I, that could be, deliverance could be like how I got this feeling. You know? What, uh, when, so, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have anything in mind? I just didn't want to be weird anymore. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm being a little bit self-effacing. Yeah. But, um, you know, I never Because really... it didn't work, dude. You're still weird. I know. And I'm hanging out with y'all, so that ain't, that ain't helping the cause. Uh-uh. No. Um, I always... I wanted to be a teacher, mm-hmm. and I spent time in the, in the public school. I was a double major in English and secondary education, and I got into the public school, and... Uh, like in high school? Yeah, I was student teaching, and at the end of it, it was my senior year in college, and I was like 22 years old, and I was writing lesson plans and making, you know, documenting how my lesson plan fulfilled state standard 3.147, and it was a lot of empty, soulless, bureaucratic work, and I thought, wow, you know, I should be out drinking alcohol and chasing girls, you know, at my age, I shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing this. So I I quit that abruptly, and I applied to graduate schools, and uh, you know, with the goal of teaching at the college level. I went to University of Arizona, and I taught there. And now I'm doing the same thing here at University of New Hampshire. That's awesome. What? Uh, where's University of Arizona? Is that Tucson, Arizona? Tucson, yeah. Super hot. Very hot. But the thing is, it's nice because um, it feels like you are in a jacuzzi like a warm jacuzzi but you are not wet mm. you know they call it the dry heat yeah, if, that's the best way i could describe it and it's it's lovely in the winter uh you know there's no humidity it's gets you know maybe it's in the 70s at night and you can walk around with shorts you know at night short sleeves and it's it's just perfect in the winter so what got you into like what was so? What was your your double major? English and secondary education. What which is ma- high what, school? What got you into English? I resisted it for a long time because um, you know everything in the in the schools is STEM: science, technology, math. And I felt like, oh, if I major in English, there's not a career path ready for me. Even though I was good at it, and I knew that I was good at it, and that I enjoyed it. So I resisted it for a long time until one day I just said, you know, screw it. Like, I can't deny it anymore. You know, this is what I'm best at and this is what I want to do. And it's strangely enough, like I actually ended up the way my life unfolded. It refuted that idea that I had early on that I couldn't like get a good job or, you know, make some money. After I graduated with my master's degree, I worked for two different companies. I was... um, a copywriter for a business ethics think tank that was owned by the New York Stock Exchange. And I wrote long form social media content, 
content for a lawyer who specialized in ethics and compliance, which is like the uh, relationship between governmental regulatory bodies. Is that an oxymoron? Lawyer who specializes in ethics? It, it, it is. Okay, it is I was just oxymoron. making sure. <laughs> but the thing is, the ethics industry in business is kind of a racket. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's basically like buying insurance so that when you inevitably go to court for whatever misconduct you or your employees did, you can present evidence to the court that you have this ethics program and it looks good, you know, after the fact. Yeah. Um, what, so is, was your, like, was, when you say you were good at English, was like, you were good at grammar or you were good at like, I mean that I was dumb at everything else, and <laughs> decent at right. but uh, no, I was good. It was good at reading, you know, yeah. like, and like comprehend, like, yeah, uh, analyzing I mean, it. Reading is a process of, perception you know like and i just it, you know it's something that is evident you know when you read and when you talk about reading you know it just kind of comes out and that's how it was for me was there any books like where you were like this is the book you know yeah and there really isn't people ask me that question like all the time they're like oh what are your favorite books and I'm like well you know i don't have a favorite book the thing that i like about literature and is that you know people say fiction is not real right but fiction is often more real than anything else because writers write from experience and fiction is a compendium of human experience you know if you're reading a book you're reading stories about conflicts you're reading stories about relationships you know you're understanding patterns of human interaction so in a way it's like pop psychology right without the science like at whatever period of time? I mean, it doesn't even have to be in terms of a specific time period. You know, you could read stories about, you know, you could read about relate power relations in Shakespeare and apply those to, you know, the current political climate. You know, I'm often not upset or surprised by anything that goes on because I've read about it before in, in a story. You know, people do this, have done the same things throughout history. Yeah. You know, we repeat our mistakes and our our actions quite often so you're you're like you told me before your focus is shakespeare mm -hmm. right that's correct um so that to me is interesting like okay. how did that how did you get into because i mean he's like the man but really, I don't really, I, if you were ever, like, until I talked to you on a ride to Connecticut, I was like, yeah, I, don't know, I mean, you know, everybody knows Shakespeare, but what do you, I don't really know Shakespeare, right. like anything about it, other than Macbeth, or like, you know, some a couple titles, Yeah, you know? How did you get in, how did you, you know? It was through coursework, and it really wasn't even that I read Shakespeare and was blown away, it was... You know, I was taking classes and I was exposed to it and I began to write about it and I knew that I wanted to teach English at a higher level. So I continued with it. I worked on uh, an essay that got published in an undergraduate journal and it was kind of like in terms of pre-professionalization, I was already on this track to study Shakespeare. So I f am following that track to its logical conclusion, whatever it may be. But, um, you know, you're talking about one of the most important things to know about Shakespeare from just a popular perspective is that Shakespeare is not necessarily 
you know, you, you said Shakespeare is the man and that's true, but he's also a product of his time and that Shakespeare knew all of the other playwrights who were active at that time. They collaborated with each other often during this period. There were no copyright laws. So writers had to actively produce in order to get paid. And Shakespeare often entered into partnerships with other playwrights in order to revise his plays or to, you know, tag team a certain work. I mean, this didn't happen all the time, but it happened enough to where it is a precedented pattern. So there's all these ridiculous conspiracy theories about Shakespeare was not Shakespeare. He was Christopher Marlowe. He was an alien. You know, he's part of the Illuminati or whatever. <laughs> and those things are utterly ridiculous. But, you know, the grain of truth that those conspiracy theories have is that often in the early modern period, which is what we call the time period when Shakespeare was writing, um, you know, the composition of a play might have been a collaborative exercise. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot known about his life? There's a lot known about his life. But the one thing that we're missing that everybody wants is people want a diary. Yeah. They want to know why Shakespeare chose to write this particular scene. What was he thinking when he, you know, was he thinking about issues of colonization in the early 1600s when he wrote The Tempest and put down, you know, the figure of the black man in Caliban? And there's no really, there's no way to know that. But there's a lot of governmental records. You know, we know where Shakespeare lived. He was actually a pretty wealthy guy by standards of the time. Like born wealthy? No, he was not born wealthy. But he was extremely famous during his time period because he was both an actor. He was an actor early in his career. And then he became, you know, one of the top playwrights of the period. And he was actually sponsored by nobility it was actually sponsored by uh, King James but um, we know that he had a house in the country in Stratford-on-Avon where he lived and when he went to London to work on plays and to write and perform he uh, lodged with a I think like a shoemaker or a cobbler or something and we know that he was involved there are court records we know that he was involved in a legal dispute where he gave a character witness for somebody so we have all these traces of where he was and what he was doing, but we don't have his first-hand account of X or Y. So that's where you come in. And that's nobody's gonna come in there, no, you know. Like, right. But people write and guess about what he's trying to. People write and guess, and the way that we try and understand what might have gone through Shakespeare's mind is we look at what he read and we looked at the intellectual climate, the intellectual and cultural climate of that time period. So we know that people were reading, um, you know, classical works. We know that Shakespeare read Ovid. We know that he had some schooling that included uh, Greek and Latin, you know. We know that he had a, re a reading knowledge of Italian. So, you know, one of the things that makes Shakespeare universal is that he has this sort of cosmopolitan sense about him. And uh, that comes from the fact that he read widely. And we can kind of reconstruct that by looking at the things that he read. What uh, what do they know about like his growing up? Do you know anything about that? A little bit. He grew up poor in Stratford-on-Avon. His father was a glove maker. Um, I think his mother might have just been a homemaker. And um, he didn't actually, many of his contemporaries went to university and Shakespeare didn't. Instead, he stopped at sort of the grammar school education 
and he ended up uh, becoming an actor and then striking out as a playwright. And when I say striking out, I don't mean failing. Yeah, I mean yeah. like, you know, going out to be a playwright. And when he did, people resisted him because he wasn't educated. A famous playwright called him an upstart crow. And that's sort of a famous phrase that's used to talk about you know, Shakespeare at the beginning of his career as an underdog, as sort of a guy who wasn't really supposed to be in the place where he ended up because he was born, uh, you know, he was born low and he didn't go to uh, Cambridge like Christopher Marlowe or any of the other contemporaries. Ben Ben Johnson is a, you probably don't know this no. person, but uh, Ben Johnson was a really famous playwright and he was Shakespeare's, one of Shakespeare's rivals and Ben Johnson was this guy with a huge library, huge erudition. He could read Greek and Latin, you know, with fluidity. And he was always a little bit jealous because Shakespeare was more successful, but he was more educated and he could never really reach the same heights that Shakespeare did. So it's interesting to me that Shakespeare, because you hear about so many artists from history that didn't, it was at least painters that I think of, that didn't get famous until they, after they died. Right. But he was famous during the time right. he was alive. And rightfully so, you know, because he was an actor right. and a playwright. You know, his art is so public that it was, uh, you know, basically like our version of TV, you know, their version of TV. And their version of TV was a communal experience. These theaters in London were actually uh, huge population centers because people, all types of people would go there. They had um, an open standing, open area where people stood and it was really cheap to get in. So the poorest person in London could pay you know, could pay to get in and stand and watch the play. The same play that the rich same play people. that the richest person would get a private box on that same day, and they would see the same thing. People bought and sold food there, so there were vendors there doing business, and um, it was you know people authorities were actually concerned because there were so many people congregated in the theaters that disease was spreading. Huh. What year was this? We're this talking. So we're talking like 1580s to like 1620s. So Shakespeare was active in the 1590s and he died in the 16-teens. How many people could were, were in one of these playhouses? Like hundreds? No, uh, more than hundreds. Actually, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. But I would assume that it would be hundreds to a thousand. Yeah. And then later on, as the plays became more sophisticated, these were open-air playhouses. They, they built more exclusive playhouses that were indoors. They were buildings where the plays would be performed in the buildings, and they were more intimate. But for a majority of the period, you know, the way that you would see the play was of an intense communal experience. Mm. How... I mean, I've heard, you know, you hear Macbeth and, you know, a few. Is he the Taming of the Shrew? Yeah. 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 So how, how much did he really write, though? Did he write tons of tons of stuff? Yeah, he wrote uh, either 36 or 38 plays. And, um, you know, I was talking about collaboration before. Yeah. A, a minority of these plays had contributors 
where you know certain playwrights were good at certain things. So because they knew each other, sometimes they would get together and they would say, "Hey, could you provide me with, you know, um, a conclusion to my play, or could you provide me with this particular scene that you're good at that I could put in the third act of my play?" And in return, I'll do something for you. So a majority of Shakespeare's play, you know, Shakespeare's work was written by Shakespeare with, you know, guest cameos from uh, George Peel or. Uh, some of the other playwrights that were active in the period. Why has his stuff stayed so relevant mm -hmm. or to now and others did not? It's a good question. And I think the question is, the answer to the question is that he is appropriately vague, right? Um, if you think about the play, right, the plays have different meanings. You know, the meaning changes according to the cultural moment that it's composed in. So think about, I don't know if you've ever read Henry V, but you've no. heard the phrase, the band of brothers. Mm -hmm. Like sure. oh, Tyler yeah. posted that on Facebook right. the other day. Yep. That's a Shakespeare quote. He probably doesn't know that, but that's a Shakespeare quote. Well, maybe he does know that. I don't know. Maybe he'll kick my ass later. I mean, he <laughs> well, will. he's going to anyway, but, anyway, but, right. so whatever. but with love. With love, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this speech that we're talking about is the St. Crispin's Day speech. And uh, King Henry gives this rousing speech to his troops right before they go and fight the French. So this moment meant something different uh, in world, to soldiers in World War II who were fighting for freedom, who were fighting for, you know, to end Nazism, meant something different to them than it would have to soldiers in the 70s fighting in Vietnam. So part of the reason why Shakespeare has endured is because its meaning transmutes um, in every performance, right? It means something different because different actors and audience members bring a different perspective to the play, or the play is performed in context of a particular historical moment that adds a different shade or a different color to events so i came across a quote yeah. recently by shakespeare okay i believe it's by him i mean you can go on the internet and you see quotes and the same quote sure. is attributed to 27 right. different people but it was like oh man here's a here's a great thing of what i do this exemplifies my whole life right now and it's it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury Signifying, signifying nothing, nothing. <laughs> i saw that i thought it was the greatest thing i've ever I was yeah like, man it's beautiful so and I, is that from Macbeth? no that's not oh, from Macbeth. Uh, i think i wrote that that was what it was from but uh oh uh, i don't know that that i don't know uh but man i saw that and i thought this is pretty much what i've been doing for the last couple of years <laughs> a tale told by an idiot uh full of sound and fury signifying nothing um what what is his most famous work? Is there one that stands out like That is Macbeth, I'm Ma sorry. Oh, that's okay. I won't Here's uh, the full quote. Life out brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more is a tale full told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, <laughs> signifying nothing. It's very nihilistic. But the, <laughs> but the thing about this is that this is performed. So right. the actor that would perform this would perform it in a histrionic way with gesturing, you know, pandering to the audience. And this is why 
was so popular is because people can go and watch this and you know in in the tragedies there are these melodramatic swings of emotion and the tragedies are often about the mutability of life you know you could be a rich king one day and because of disease or political circumstances that change you could be you know you can fall precipitously to nothing and that's what king king lear is about that's what happens in king lear so uh something like this would be um you know a moment for the actor to really indulge and you know give the audience something interestingly melodramatic to sort of feast on have you ever done any acting a little bit have you yeah I played a pickup artist <laughs> with a hairy chest. Nice. I had fake chest hair. Really? And, uh, That's awesome. The girl that I was acting with was later became like a professional model. So I felt like, okay, I'm playing a creepy guy, like trying to hit on this, you know, unattainable girl. It's like this better not set a set. I hope this doesn't set a precedent. <laughs> was that in college? That was in high school. High school? Yeah. Do you do you want want to do stuff like that or no? Yeah, I think yeah. it's cool. You know, I would do it. I would do more of it. I just, you know, do a lot already. So yeah, well, yeah, I know. Um. So what 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 is his most famous? Is Macbeth his most famous? So it kind of so his most famous work changes according to the times. Yep. In the nineteenth century, uh, when romanticism was dominant, a lot of people really liked. Um, the Tempest, because The Tempest has, are you familiar with the story? No. It's got fairies and magic, and it takes place on an island. Um, there's a noble savage on the island, and it's about, um, you know, this, uh, oh, there's your cat. Oh. Cool. <laughs> she's so interested she's a big in, one. yeah, she is a big cat. She's interested in the tempest. She's not yeah. Down here. So the tempest was a was, has a lot of natural elements in it, and that was big in the nineteenth century. Uh, in the twentieth century, um, you know, King Lear has sort of been seen as the apex of um, King Lear and Hamlet are sort of the apex oh, right. of uh, Shakespeare's achievement. King Lear because it's sweeping and poetic, and it kind of exemplifies the tragic fall. Hamlet, because it is one of the first literary works to focus on interiority, like what's going on inside the character's mind, you know, and that's what Hamlet is talking about, you know, in his famous monologue. Um, he's talking about to be or not to be, right. you know, is it better to live or die? And the ironic thing about Hamlet's monologue is that it's about nothing, you know, a speech about nothing became the most famous, most quoted, most reproduced line from Shakespeare, and it's not at all um, important to the plot, nor is it important in terms of its content, because Hamlet is, uh, you know, he's performing mad, and he's vacillating between this sort of, you know, two extremes of this sort of broad philosophical question and not really coming to a conclusion. And that is the one that has and, endured. And that is the one that has endured. And the reason that I think it has endured is because it is easily parodied and it sort of is self-reflexive of, of drama, of tragedy in general, because tragedy does have these swings from, uh, you know, extreme like rise and fall and sort of that emotional roller coaster. 
is part of that speech. Is most of Shakespeare's stuff tragedy? No. Kind of everything. Um, tra- so he wrote comedies at the beginning of his career, and then something happened, and he started writing tragedies. And then, after he got sick of started writing tragedies, he wrote mixed genre plays that have both tragic and comic comic element, elements, and we call those romances, or we call so they used to be called problem plays. But then people realize, hey, this is kind of its own genre. Let's not call it a problem play. <laughs> what do you study? Problem plays. Problem plays. Yeah, like problem child. Oh, that sounds difficult, problematic, right? <laughs> what do you have a favorite? Yeah, I do. It's a play that nobody's ever heard of before. It's called Cymbeline. Cymbeline. Cymbeline is my favorite Shakespeare play. And it's my favorite Shakespeare play because the language is so poetic. It was actually one of his later plays. It was one of the quote-unquote problem plays. Yeah. And it was written at a time when the theater was moving toward a very um, stylized... um, Plays that were very stylized and very visual, used a lot of props. So the reason that I like this play is because there's so much going on in it. There's a beheading, there's a huge battle between uh, like, you know, ancient Britons and Romans. There's a God descending from, you know, the heavens and in like this surrounded by fire and like talking to people. And um, there's like a, there's a really poetic scene where, I mean, it sounds so creepy, but the, the crux of the play, the, all the action in the play starts because these two guys are arguing over a woman's chastity. One guy is like, my girlfriend is so chaste. And the other guy is like, is she though? <laughs> and he makes this bet to go seduce her. And he ends up tricking the person who made the bet. He actually doesn't get to seduce her, but he hides himself in a box and looks at her naked. So some of the most poetic moments in this play and some of the most poetic moments in Shakespeare's canon occur while a man <laughs> is looking at a naked woman <laughs> while she's asleep, right? It's the creepiest thing ever, but you know he's talking about how her breathing has perfumed the chamber and it's just really florid, ornate images. And the, this play is filled with that. That's why I like it because it's sort of the most rhetorically sumptuous play. One of the most rhetorically sumptuous plays that he wrote. Very cool. How old was Shakespeare when he died? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I don't think he lived. I think he may have died in his 40s or 50s. He could have lived longer, but he was actually already kind of ready to retire. There was a younger guy in his acting company, a guy named John Fletcher, and he had already started to pass the reins, you know, to John Fletcher. The last play that he wrote was actually co-written with Fletcher, so it was sort of a passing of the torch. So would he write the plays and then act in the same plays that he wrote? He, to my knowledge, he didn't do that, but he did act in Christopher Marlowe's plays, and I don't know if you've ever heard that name before. I have from you, I think. Okay. Christopher Marlowe was probably, next to Shakespeare, the second most important play, right, in the period. He predated Shakespeare by a couple years. And it was actually his plays that sort of set the foundations for a lot of things that Shakespeare did, including bloody revenge tragedies. Yeah. So Shakespeare acted in the plays of the person who was the second most important playwright. Who Who was also kind of like his mentor? 
wasn't no. really his mentor. Christopher Marlowe was an interesting dude. He was a spy. He uh, like would disappear for long periods of time, and uh, he had letters from the queen, like exonerating, you know, letters from the rulers exonerating his absences in cer- at certain points. He was a drunk. He may have been a pederast. He made comments in a very tightly religious age. He made comments about you know the greatest pleasures in long in in life are tobacco and young boys. <laughs> And then he got killed because he got stabbed in the eye during a bar fight. <laughs> so I feel like he's your kind of character. <laughs> Thank you. means a lot. And his, his plays are not performed today uh, in the same way that Shakespeare's are because they're so politically incorrect. Yeah. You know, they may not fly. I mean, they would because it's art, you know, and because it's Marlowe, and Marlowe has a gravitas similar to Shakespeare's. But there's a play called The Jew of Malta, where the Jew gets killed, you know, the Jew is like the bad guy. He's the main character of the play, but, um, you know, we're kind of awed by his evil, you know, and like, you know, he's got this stereotypical greedy depiction and he dies by falling into a burning cauldron. And this imagery was deliberately written to mirror an image of the Jew burning in hell. Right. So this guy poisons a bunch of nuns. His daughter runs off, and uh, the Jewish guy, yeah, in the, the Jewish play? guy's daughter is, uh, you know, disappointed. You know, she runs off to be a nun, and he's like, "Well, I guess I'm going to take revenge by poisoning the river near the convent and killing all the nuns." So he kills all the nuns. What was the reli- like? Were Shakespeare and Marlowe religious? Like, so Marlowe was-, was not religious. Shakespeare, we can, I don't know for sure, but it's my assumption that on the exterior, you know, he was a good Anglican. But, um, you know, these guys were really famous and they had a ton of leeway. And given Shakespeare's um, critical eye uh, and his sort of critique of pow- power relations, you know, I can assume, you know, it wouldn't surprise me whether his personal beliefs might have gone a different way you know like when you say really famous like really famous in like great britain yeah but you know the theatrical community there was uh you know influences from italy back and forth so people in the theatrical community in other countries might have known but we're talking about you know think of like you know the most famous actor or director that you can think of today and that's what we're talking about yeah um, Dude, we were talking about some interesting stuff about you before. <laughs> you want to fl- You want to turn the tables a little bit? <laughs> I mean, we can talk about yeah, whatever yeah. you want. Because yeah. I want to pick up where we left off. Yeah. You, know, you were telling me about uh, you know getting going into your English class freshly sober. You know, yeah. I, like you know, you're talking about me mm-hmm. getting my perspective from sure. sort of like the academy. Like I want to f- know what it's like for you. You know, as a civilian. Because the thing is, like, it's important for me to, you know, in my discipline, right, the scholars talk to each other and the scholars write to each other. So, I mean, where I was, so I grew up reading a lot. Yeah. You know, like I had always reading. My Both my mother and father were prolific readers of books, classic books, you know. Everything. Is there anything that stands out? That you read? That I read? That was... To me, the 
Yeah. Like, so we've talked about it. Like, to me, Huckleberry Finn Great. was like, blew my mind. How old were you when you read it and what attracted you to it? Um, so I may have read it before. Like, I may have read it younger, but that, when I read it in that class, like going to English 401 or whatever, mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit. Like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know? That, I, you know, I remember that um, is something that really stood out. That, that's probably the the one, I guess. You Can know? you pinpoint what it was about that book? Man, that stood it's been out so long it's been since long I've read it. I'm sure. But to me, it was like... And To Kill a Mockingbird is another one that really, like... And maybe because both of them were, like... um, You know, both of those stories are about outcasts. Yeah. You know. Right. I mean, I could totally identify with the Huckleberry Finn... Right. You know, thing of, like, doing crazy stuff and adventures. Traveling around, Making friends in weird places. Meeting meeting up with the crazy people and bonding with them and do it, but like, you know, not like causing trouble, but not anything crazy, you know. Um, Yeah, so, you know, and then I went on after to read a lot of like Mark Twain books, and, uh, and I really identify, you know, with the stuff he wrote for sure. And since then, I've read, you know, a lot of Ernest Hemingway. Great. Just Great. because of like f- the male fighting, sure. traveling, adventure kind of. And we, we, you know, when I was a kid, we went to Key West and went to his house, okay. saw the cats, you know. If I were to guess, I would assume that you probably prefer the Twain over the Hemingway. Yeah, like, that seems to fit your personality. Yeah, more. I did. I mean, I just just for the just for fun the other day, I read uh, the Old Man in the Sea again. Cool. Which it, to me was really really good, mm-hmm. but and and certainly the the whole struggle, you know, and the whole thing of like, uh, you know, he's out. The old man is out there fighting with the fish for forever, and the f- stubbornness, and uh, you know, bringing the fish in, and like it's sort of. Tr- tragedy and coming in and the sharks are eating the fish but he's like proven to the it's almost like he's proven to the people like hey i can still fish you know what i mean um i can appreciate that's what i you know i i get out of that and the kid these kid the kids got respect for the fishermen um did you like the sun also rises did you read that (sighs) one that's about the world war one veteran he's uh impotent he had an injury during the war and he's sort of watching his love interest no float along hook up with other guys and i've read some of like um the nick adams the nick adams stories are good yeah those were good i like stuff like that i like like when when you know earlier we talked about stephen crane yeah i liked his a lot of his stories did Um, you read stories or poetry of Stephen Cranes. Like, uh, you know, the Red Badge of Courage, right, okay. was him, I think. Yep, that's it. Um, so, but yeah, Mark Twain to me, you know, because he's more like, uh, I don't know if it's like accessible or, I mean, I don't know. Well, he has a playful streak that right. Hemingway doesn't have in you, in your personality, have that as well. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that would be a, a that would probably be the one you know that to me was. So when I'm in this class and we're dissecting this, so I'm in a, an English class, right? And mm -hmm. to be honest with you, I think I passed one English class in high school. And congratulations on passing that <laughs> on one. That one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't show. I didn't go to school generally. I didn't. I had better things to do. Um, so I go into this, and so grammar. I'm. I'm not. My grammar comes from reading a lot, like not knowing prepositions and, and you know. Sure. I mean, I have an understanding of some of these things, but you like. You have internalized yeah, rules. And, right. And or, and I know or I know what sounds right, I guess, maybe. Um, but so I show, you know, I'm, I'm in this class and I really enjoyed that class. I thought it was great. Um, but I would have a hard time at times when, you know, um I would take it like, just like I take everything very personally, you know, people that had gone to high school through four years of English and are on the track of um, doing this thing, have a different way of coming at it than how me, who had not followed the traditional way, you know, I'm like, man, can't we just read this book and enjoy it? And, 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 you know, People are questioning whether Mark Twain is racist, you know, because of the language in the book. Right. And I'm getting mad, you know what I mean? And it's probably not worth getting mad over, but teacher loved it because I would like have like caused like good discussions. And that's what we want to yeah. see. Oh, yeah. Know? As a teacher, you, you don't really want your students to be fixated on the idea of right and wrong. You know, often you're teaching argument and arguments are contestable. So if you have your argument, uh, you know, you can make it tight or you can make it loose. Um, but, you know, in order to have that activity, you know, you have to have two sides. Yeah, so that, you know, I, I, I always wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. There were definitely... Did you ever try and write? Yeah, I mean, I took, you know... Um, did you write fiction or did you try and write from your experiences? Um experiences okay experiences. so was it non-fiction or was it sort of like like narrative type you know if that's a thing like uh you know like um like sort of a you know stylized memoir type thing yeah maybe maybe you know um so i've started writing things again Good. you know Good. just to you like should. um because if you want to be a writer you gotta write yeah Right. If you go, if you want to be a writer, you got to write every day. You got to write, and every you day. have to, you know, even when it doesn't feel good, you got to keep doing it. Um, you know, I've, I in the English program at UNH, you know, I'm exposed to a lot of writers, and uh, you know, the ones that are professional about it will write every day, and the ones that aren't won't, and you know, the results are self-evident. Mm. Just like anything else, you know, you got to commit to it. So it's funny because too. Since we're talking about Shakespeare and and I don't have you know I don't have any experience probably with his stuff, but you know the way I grew up, it was like wasn't cool to be into you know into books into man. books yeah. or but I always was you know right or plays or right. poetry or blah 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 you know what I mean. Also at UNH, years later, maybe like as a senior. I took uh, stagecraft 
Oh, interesting. And, man, I love that was the best. I had I had a construction background, so I was like, you know, light Building years stuff, ahead of yeah. anybody else in there. But if and I had to go and and uh we watched Blood Brothers. We built stuff for this play called Blood Brothers, where, wherever that was. Mm-hmm. It was very good. It was uh kind of, you know, and I've seen many things since then, it, little plays around uh Portsmouth. And Okay. And I've enjoyed them, and I can admit that on on yeah. a uh, on a podcast. Hey man, like back before TV, everybody went to go see plays. Yeah, like it's great. I don't know how that connotation, you know, occurred because generations ago, right? You know, in the '30s and '40s, right, going to a play was, you know, like a social event. It was like going to a ball. You know, it was like something that everybody just did. Right. So yeah, um, I'm trying to think of what I've been reading lately, but oh, the old man in the sea, which is very quick, quick and easy. Very uh, quick, yeah. yeah, it was like two days, you know, two nights. I'd sit here and uh, because I get addicted, to, you know, you know how I get. So I started reading it, and then I got to know the you, end. You should read "The Sun Also Rises" and then let me know what you think of that book. That's probably one of my favorite books by Hemingway. You know, Hemingway has this sort of politics of suffering. You know, all his characters are broken. You know, the world is inadequate. And yet there is this, like, you know, nobility in, uh, you know, looking at the world and just continuing to press on despite the fact that, you know, the world is not hospitable. And that's part of a broader movement, you know. You know, Hemingway is associated with what's called modernism. And um, modernism was born out of World War One. You know, before World War One, if you look at the literature, it's romantic poetry. Or uh, right before World War One, the poets wrote patriotic poems that would encourage the men to go off and fight. And, um, you know, people never questioned this because up until World War One. Wars were f- not fought by major European powers with, uh, you know, advanced technology. It was limited warfare. You know, you had muskets. You know, you couldn't kill people with a musket real easily. And then in the uh, 1800s, these guys went to Africa and they, you know, blasted tribesmen with machine guns. And nobody in Europe really felt the repercussions of technological warfare like they did in World War One. So after World War One, during World War One, when people, you know, young men are dying by the hundreds every day, and you end up with millions of people dead, the literature changes and it becomes less hopeful. It becomes uh, more invested with, you know, suffering and in- the inadequacy of religion to compensate for the loss, you know, the uh, meaninglessness or the, um, you know, the duplicity of a government that keeps the wars going despite what's going on. So literature like Hemingway changes to reflect that tone during that period, and that's what we call modernism. Which is also, um, I mean, who wrote Gatsby? And 
Yeah, that's they were um, all together. F. Scott Fitzgerald, F. Scott, they were right? all buddies. The twenties yeah. in Paris. Yeah, um, right. F. F. Scott Fitzgerald actually showed Hemingway his penis one time, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was nervous. He he thought it was smaller than normal. Yeah. So he showed Hemingway, and he was like, "No, man, you're good. Like this is regular." <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so here's I like Gatsby a lot too. Yeah. Do you remember what Gatsby did before he became Gatsby? What he did? Yeah. What was his job? Do you did you read Gatsby? I don't know if I read it or just okay. saw the movie. I'm not sure. So Gatsby, his name is like Jay Gats, right? And yeah. Gatsby is this character that he becomes. Um, but he was actually a veteran, a World War One veteran. And he came back to America after the war. He didn't have anything but his uniform. And he expected that his service would entitle him or, hmm. you know, give him an opportunity to make it. And he ends up not making it in business. He gets involved with, uh, you know, guys that fix the World Series and run, you know, Moonshine. And he, be he it's never really stated in the book, but he has these ties to sort of criminal activity. And uh, we just see sort of the, you know, the narrator, Nick Carraway, right, tells us, like, right. you know, Gatsby's parties and whatnot. We just see the uh, the appearance of it. And we learn that, you know, Gatsby, the American dream, failed Gatsby. And this is what modernism is, you know. It's about the inadequacy of uh, explanatory systems or social structures to provide meaning, safety, and security in a tenuous world. So there's a Shakespeare quote from my favorite Shakespeare quote of all time. It's from the Merchant of Venice. So may the outward shows be least themselves, but the world the world is still deceived with ornament. So this means that external appearances are not what they seem to be. And that's what's going on in Gatsby. Right. Right. Um who wrote the great Steinbeck? The Grapes, the Grapes of, of Wrath. Wrath. Right? I can't talk to you about that no. one. I've actually never read really? it. Really? Yeah. Was he that same era though? Or no? He was. Yeah. Depression era. Right. I mean, Fitzgerald preceded him by a few years because Fitzgerald was writing about the Roaring Twenties and Steinbeck came in after, you know, his his famous works deal with the de depression. The lifestyle. Dust Bowl and the Yeah, all that right. stuff. You read a lot of Dickens? I love Dickens yeah. and I love Thackeray. Um Dickens is great because Dickens writes not about one or two people, but he really writes about the social atmosphere. You know, he writes about the community and all his colorful characters sort of combine to give you a nice cross section of what's, you know, what life is like in, uh, you know, urban London where people of different social classes are, uh, Lay, uh, you know, they're in close proximity to each other, and people have different ambitions. They're scheming to rise in the social ladder. I love it. I think that's why I like. I think that what you say makes me realize the things that I like. I love colorful characters, like that, because that's how I. Maybe that's that's because you. That's the people I grew up around. Yeah. We're all interesting. Like, not normal, boring people. I grew up with adults around me that were, like, people you would read about in Charles Dickens. You know what I mean? Like, a bunch of New England Irish people that were, like, entertaining and, like, but, like, on the fringe. Um, but, like, people you'd want to be around. Awesome. Like, oh, man, I want to be around these people. Like, they're fun. 
but have the Hemingway twist of like there's some misery, yeah, um, some depression, you know, fun sprinkled in with a little depression, and uh, that's what I've always been attracted to. <laughs> I mean, that's very, um, you know, we were talking about Shakespeare's plays, mixed genre plays. You know, you got a life is a mixture of comedy and tragedy, and you know that's reflected in your literary tastes. So what were you doing? I mean, I've I've definitely uh, people ask me about different like you know jujitsu, right? We have yeah. this common thing of jujitsu, and if people have, like that come in and, and are talking asking about tournaments, I will be I'll be like, you know what? A day at a tournament is like a Greek tragedy, man. There's a little bit of everything. There's this triumph. Yeah. There's this misery. There's uh, fear. There's you know, the the feeling after when well, you're done with it. It's like this crazy emotional roller coaster of, of uh Absolutely. every feeling of the whole thing, Absolutely. you know? You're you're at the beginning, you're like, Why am I doing this shit? And then you're like doing it and you're loving it. You might experience, you know, happiness because you won and you know misery that you'll go walk around for me if you're me for three weeks after if you lose <laughs> um but in somewhere in there you're like oh man then there's this relief it's uh you do do that when people ask you about competitions you say exactly that every yeah, time yeah that's, that's how i feel about it mm -hmm. i mean especially if you're coaching and competing oh geez. you're like because and that's how it always is for me i'm always coaching and competing and you know what i mean so there's and like babysitting and babysitting <laughs> and you know i multitask like no one else in these buildings <laughs> i got kids adult yep. kids yeah i'm getting ready you know I've always equated that to some kind of like a Homer, the Odyssey. Type right, thing, right. You know what I mean? An epic, right? There's yeah, all the action in an epic occurs on the day of the tournament. Yeah. It's true, man. It's, um, but I love it. And I hate it at the same time. But that's the thing, too. Like, so Hemingway, I always think about, you know, him at the end killing himself mm. and the misery and yeah. the demons and the, the alcoholism. Uh, the alcoholism, you know. Um, the pressure that that guy must have put on himself, you know. Pressure. Um, yeah, it's very sad to me, that whole... But I think a lot of the people I know that are artists, art, artistic or whatever, have demons, you know, are wrestling with some kind of demons, you know. Yeah. And that's where maybe it comes from, or, 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 and looking at and examining them at times. I mean, I feel like... You know, as sad as it is, like that might be the only way to really reach the apex of, perfe of perfection that some of these people reach. You know, you have to have like some insecurity that you're battling or you have to have some sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, some ambition that you can never reach. I mean, unfortunately, like self-loathing is such a effective motivator, you know, and I'm sure... and you know, these artists reflect that. Even in music, too, you know. For whatever reason, yeah. Kurt Cobain always comes to my mind. Always comes back to <laughs> It comes to my we're mind. We're talking about Shakespeare, now we're going to talk about Kurt, Kurt Cobain. Cobain. You know what I mean? Like, or Hemingway, who are two, I'm sure, very different individuals. But I feel like, you know, the demons drive well, They're both Illuminati, so. Could be. Yeah. Rothschilds. <laughs> right. Um... 
but the demons drive you to this thing and you got these insecurities and you got all these things and i feel like i got the same things so i'm right yeah. there with them in the yeah. illuminati yeah um and then like you know i can't imagine you get famous like that and it puts more pressure on you and then your insecurities are even worse it's actually like one of the reasons why shakespeare is pretty remarkable because he never he was normal yeah he like there's no record of him ever doing bad behavior but he also had his house in the country you know he, he didn't stay in london where all the fame and glory was he went right. back and forth to see his family they, they i mean they had newspapers at the time at this time they didn't have newspapers in the sense that like you think of a newspaper today but there were bulletins and publications you know it wasn't like a i thought they four, had like a a kid would like call out the news. Didn't they? Didn't they uh, used to maybe yell out it was the like news? town criers or yeah. something would yeah. yell out the exactly. news. Yeah, yeah. but it, I don't think it had mutated into a for-profit industry. When was the plague? After Shakespeare, the plague was before, before. and after Shakespeare. All oh, right. Yeah, the plague is really interesting because the plague actually. So there's a literary term that I'm gonna bust out. Yes. An epistemic shift. An episteme is, it refers to knowledge, like what we refer to as true, what we think of as true. So the plague, before the plague, people used to think about their bodies in terms of humors. Do you know about that? No. The humoral theories? I don't think so. They used to think that your body was sort of this self-contained vessel and something, in, if there was an imbalance in your body, then you would get sick. But the plague actually changed people's understanding scientifically because you could observe a person who got sick by being in contact with another sick person. Right. So this period that we're talking about, Shakespeare's lifetime, was the first time people started to learn about the germ model, the communicable disease model. And that actually shows up in a lot of Shakespeare's plays because he uses disease in many cases as a metaphor uh, he uses disease in order to describe like interactions between people that corrupt you emotionally or spiritually. Can you imagine if you didn't, if there's no concept of disease or germs, you can't see germs making the leap from not believing in germs to all of a sudden believing that is yeah, a huge, that leap happened during the time period. The plague was a virus that was carried on by the, the fleas on the rats, right? Rats, yeah, yeah, rats. And during this time period, you also have to think about, you know, Disgusting. plumbing was right. not sophisticated. Right. So, you know, people had um, chamber pots or whatever, you know. They'd and flick them out their windows. Horses were defecating in the streets. People would flick them out the windows. <laughs> yeah. So you had all these people living in close proximity. And, you know, there's... a fecal matter and you know people sharing beds and mm -hmm. you know like hygiene is not advanced and they had the animals living in their homes animals were in the homes yeah. i mean there's a goat walking around <laughs> yeah everybody's so, drunk everybody's drunk <laughs> there was actually like some crazy um you know pseudoscientific theories about disease i actually read an account recently where these people in italy were trying to figure out the source of a plague the plague came and then it was in recession for seven years. And for some reason, they decided that 
the plague lay dormant in this guy's bed for seven years. <laughs> oh, and they traced it back to like the individual bed. To the bed. And then they destroyed that bed, hoping yeah. that, you know, it would eliminate the source of the plague. Oh, good grief. Can you imagine people d- dropping like that, man? And you and don't not know knowing what the hell's yeah, going on. For hundreds of years, apparently. And uh, Yeah. It's got to be That's like what it was like. Brutal. And, you know, there were still, like, medieval theories of medicine. So people were like, oh, well, let's drain their blood and right. see what happens. Right. And it caused, like, a lot of cruelty, you know, because plague victims, you know, were basically pariahs. You yeah. know, there are stories. There's a playwright, a guy named Thomas Decker, who wrote, uh, who um, recorded his experiences of the plague in a book titled The Wonderful Year. It's very ironic, but. <laughs> He tells stories about how, you know, these plague victims would get kicked out of town and then they would die of starvation because nobody is going to take care of them or risk exposure. Like you survived the plague. Now you're fucked. But you're going to die of starvation. Right. Oh, man. That's horrible. It is horrible. But you can understand, like, why that would happen. You know, know. it's like you're in that situation. It's like, okay, well, it's either, it's like Ebola, you know. Fear, man. You know, fear. So you teach, you teach, like, what do you do? What do you do now? I teach 401. You teach English I teach that class that you took. Right. Yeah. So what did you do with Harry Potter? I tried to get my students to not like it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How did that work? I think, you know, I don't try (laughs) that hard. Like, they don't know that that's what I'm trying to do. But I'm trying to, you know show them something more sophisticated than Harry Potter Mm -hmm. and try and get them to appreciate that. Do your students, I mean, you, so you're dealing with, I mean, 401 is like a gen ed. It's a gen ed. For every, everybody takes it. Everybody Everybody has to. So no matter what your science, you know, science, nursing, business, you know, I see it all. Yeah. And it's, it's okay. You know, it works out. Um, a majority of the students, even though they have to be there, they end up liking it. And I think that that's because I know this is a little bit shameless, but I think it's because I do a pretty good job. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Listen, you're dealing with big egos. I know here, you're not. All right? I know you're shameless. Shameless. <laughs> shameless. Shameless. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. You know? I'm okay with it, too. I'm yeah. your friend. I'm still your friend. <laughs> You've been through some good car rides with me. Yeah, yeah. You know? Trips to Acadia. Yeah. Um, if you've made it through those things yep. with me, you know, you're you've accepted me. I have. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to be here. Um hopefully I'm some type of character out of a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> yeah. So do you do, you've read the Harry Potter books? JK Rowling? When I was a kid, yep. I, I read them and even as a kid they didn't impress. I didn't like them enough to continue. I stopped at the third or fourth book. I forget. And I was just like, well, I want to read something different. You know, I don't want to read seven novels about the same character. I want to like explore something new. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Harry Potter is interesting because it's a cultural phenomenon, mm. and people are trying to separate right the literary right Harry Potter as a literary text. And Harry Potter as a cultural phenomenon, no, those things intersect, they're intertwined and inseparable because you have the publishing industry, the movie industry, you have fan fiction, you have, 
you know, um, manufacturing toys that are manufactured. And these things that are not literary sort of enhance the, reputa the literary repu uh, reputation of the book. And that's not really, that's not really fair, but, um, you know, we're at least grateful that, you know, Harry Potter has this place in, in literature, you know, because Does it bring it's people? something that can bring people in. Right. Because I feel like he, it's, I guess it's a circle, but right, like, isn't, I mean, the Harry Potter phenomenon is really like the movies, right? But like, obviously it goes back to the book. It goes back to the book. without the books, there would have been no movies. That's right. And maybe it draws people to the books. I, you know, I, th my sense is that the Harry Potter, you know, the popularity of Harry Potter is waning. Because it's a certain demographic that was young. It's, it's people my age, you know, people who are in their 20s and 30s right now who were young when the first book came out and grew up with the books. You know, the books came out every two years or whatever as you were growing up. And, you know, they're still written at a pretty facile level, but they incrementally rose in difficulty level so that you read one, you know, you read the first one as a third grader and mm -hmm. then you read the next one when you were in fifth grade and... You know, that kind of matches. Your Do you think she level. planned that? I think so, yeah. Yeah? But, um, like, this group of people, you know, are the main consumers, like the people that have that nostalgia attached to it. So now, just today, wait, today's Friday, right? Mm -hmm. Today. So yeah. today's Friday, and I actually taught about Harry Potter today, and I asked my students, I got 24 students, I said, raise your hand if you've read a Harry Potter book. And half or less of the class raised their hand. So I'm interested to see if next year there right. are less students who have read Harry Potter mm. and then I'll have to change my class. <laughs> to Twilight? Maybe to Twilight, maybe to um, The Hunger Games, right. perhaps. Mm. You know? right. That's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, it's almost like Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Although the writing was different, I yeah. feel like Lord of the Rings. And it's, it's interesting, too, because you can see how you know, popular culture sort of attaches itself to these things that have a nostalgic element and sort of reinvigorates them with a new movie or a new like animated right. series or a new line of, you know, goods, a new line right. of products. So it's like, in a sense, literature is battling against the entertainment industry, you know, because the entertainment industry uh, has a hold on our imagination and, you know, we don't read. But yet, in another sense, literature depends on the, you know, the entertainment industry helps literature because certain literary adaptations get a push from it. I'm sure The Hunger Games was huge for, I couldn't tell you who wrote those, but... Suzanne Collins. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it must have been huge. It was. And people who read widely and were knowledgeable were aware that what Suzanne Collins did in The Hunger Games is an old, old mo motif. Uh, you know, she's talking about uh, like a group of kids fighting to the death on an island, and it was done before twice in um, the past 50 years. Stephen King wrote uh, The Running Man, which is like a game show. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, Stephen oh, yeah. King wrote the, the Running Man, and it's like, a game show where you compete against uh, other contestants. You uh, know, you fight. You I fight remember, to the death in remember, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So while they would catch you, well, I'm trying to, like, there was a movie, The Running Man, with yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. like, when I was a kid. I didn't know that was Stephen King. It was Stephen King. No and then there was a Japanese novel that did it better, a, a novel called Battle Royale yeah. by a Japanese writer named Koshun Takami. And this was about a sixth grade class that they're in, like, this future dystopic autocratic Japan and every year there's this sacrifice where this class gets put on this island and they get weapons dropped on the island and the students have to choose, you know, to pick up a weapon and fight to the death until there's one left or they have to just resign themselves to like, you know, just getting killed by one of their classmates that decides to do this. So my theory is that if Suzanne Collins, uh, <laughs> you know, she could have been up to her ears in copyright lawsuits yeah. if someone had decided to pursue that. Right. I was always blown away that Stephen King wrote uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Amazing, right? Amazing. Dude, and he's like right next door. Right next door. Like literally. <laughs> right up the street. Like, we could probably find him in like 40 minutes. Yeah. That'll take a little longer, but yeah, we could probably find he, him. Does he live in Bangor? Bangor. Banger. Banger, Aaron banger. Yeah. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to think he's would be an interesting dude to hang out with, but who knows? Maybe uh, he's he's a crazy character too. You know, he's a big time alcoholic. He was a right, big alcoholic. Right. He said he either wrote it or Cujo while he was just completely out of his mind. You don't write The Shining without having some kind of yeah, uh, some crazy ass demons. Because huh? that to me is the most frightening. Uh, you know, the guy holed up in the in the Stanley Hotel or whatever, losing his marbles. Do you have a pen? Um, yeah. That's that to me is frightening. Um, Sharpie. Yeah. But give me something to write on. Okay. You want to talk about something scary? <laughs> I want you to read this story. This is the scariest story I've ever read. Yeah. I've read a lot of scary stories. It's called The Willows. The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. Hmm. Nothing happens in this story. Yeah. But it's the scariest story I've ever read. It's a story about two guys who go on a canoeing trip hmm. and something may or may not happen to them. They narrowly escape something. But the fact, like, yeah, like nothing actually happens, but it's still the scariest story I've ever read because the suggestion of fear is always stronger than anything scary that you can name. Right. And this is actually, I don't know if you've like have heard of H.P. Lovecraft, but that's sort of yes. his. Uh, he wrote an essay called The Supernat Supernatural Literature and Horror, where he talks about fear as the oldest emotion of mankind. And he knew, like other horror masters, that suggestion, you know, as soon as you name something or explain something, it ceases to be scary because it can be rationalized. But when something is dark and mysterious and unknowable, it is infinitely more scary. And that's what this story does. Hmm. I'll check it out. H.P. Lovecraft just kind of came into my life, like, recently, for some reason. Love like, him. I happened to just see the, you know... And I was like, H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. So did you read any Lovecraft stories I don't recently? know. I, no, I didn't. But it was like I saw something on Instagram or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why it came up. But I was like, who is H.P. Lovecraft? Some of his stories are really short. 
and you could read them in seven minutes. Yeah. If you want to get started, this story, Dagon. Dagon. Is a story that you should read. Cool. I'll check them out. Um, so what, um, when, like you're working on your PhD. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. How do you how do you finish the PhD in in what you're doing? You have to complete an academic hazing ritual, a series of <laughs> <academic> <laughs> hazing rituals. Yeah, right. Um, how close are we to? I'm in year two of five, so you're stuck with me for a little longer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, maybe Jay will give me a stripe. <laughs> you might. Give me a stripe. They don't come off. Then. No, they uh, don't come off. But you know, I got another three or four years. Yeah, so yeah. You might get, a, get a, good a stripe by then. during that time. Um, <laughs> what uh what is do you have a goal i mean yeah actually you know my goal i'm gonna complete my goal actually well i don't know if i'll complete my goal but my goal for a long time has to earn the black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu and earn the phd before i'm 35 so i'm 30 yeah i got five years to do them both yeah. i got a brown belt and i'm in two of five of the phd uh-huh. so i gotta figure out what my next goal is yeah because this goal is like approach there yeah. yeah what um like what are you gonna what, what do you you know do you have an idea of what you want to do yeah after this? i, I want to keep doing what i'm doing but you can't do it with any job security or respect or financial support uh without getting a good job at you know a university yeah. and to do that you have to get the phd you have to publish some articles you have to go on the job search you have to be on a podcast be on i'm George's sure podcast. that yeah <laughs> this is gonna be this so this is going to be like the the thing where people now are going to have to come on this. I and, think so. And have deep conversations with me in my basement. Yeah. And that's going to be a part of the the dissertation. This is like a freaky experience. You know, we're in a dark room. There's weird <laughs> smells because of all the soap. Yeah. There's a little girl passed out at <laughs> my feet. We're in a ba- 150-year-old basement. She, her face is... Uh, on the concrete floor. <laughs> She's got a point. It's like, what is this? Did I read about this in the news recently? No. Okay. okay. Let's not talk we're, about we're that. We won't go there. Right? Let's not talk okay, about We, we let her out once in a while. Okay, good. I mean, uh, she is looking a little pale. <laughs> She's so peaceful. Yeah, she is. She has a lot of practice, though, sleeping mm-hmm. while people are yakking. So totally. Totally. Yeah, man. You guys are doing good, man. Mm-hmm. Y'all are inspirational as far as parent parenting goes. <laughs> Thank you. We're lucky. Yeah. We are lucky. Well, it's parenting. Really. I mean, you made her, you know. That's yeah. true. Like, you know, physically and behaviorally. Mm-hmm. In spite of me. Yeah. I like to think. I- She's going to be an amazing kid when she gets older, yeah. that's for sure. For sure. Um, cool, man. Well, I appreciate uh, you sitting down here in the basement with me. I love being here. This was a lot of fun. Good. I really, dude, we had talked, you and I talked in a ride down to Connecticut about all yeah. this stuff. And I was like, man, this is really, this is really interesting. And cool. so were things like this where I, I you know, Meeting people like you has has given me all this like interesting. Um, I'm excited to learn about things that you know like this that people are interested in. Well, you know, 
Let's say that in exchange for this, I get to hear about some of your stories from I'll tell you, the good I'll old tell you days. All the good old days. <laughs> I want to hear some of those. <laughs> the best ones are the ones that I tell. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of good. There are a lot of good old day stories from this basement. Yeah, can you tell one now for the next episode um, of the podcast one. episode stories from the basement? Um, the river was flowing. That like this whole basement was full from the river once. Couple up times. to the ceiling, um, a foot from the ceiling. I mean, I can tell that's you the know, oil ooh. drum that used yeah, to be down here. Around. Woke up George's parents because it was bobbing off the ceiling. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the river was flowing around this house. Like, that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, nothing happened in '95. I don't know. We were living in Colorado, but oh, that was um, 2005. 2005. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, you know, I used to, just, I caused a lot of mischief in this house and yard and, you know, everywhere else. Mostly along the lines of Huckleberry Finn. There we go. No, not meaning any, nothing too bad. Just, you know, just enjoying yourself and exploring, antics. yeah. Exploring the boundaries. Yes. You know? um, cool, man. Well, thanks, Andy. We'll do it again, dude. We'll, we'll do, do it again. It again. Yeah, brother. Bye. Peace. Peace. Peace.